91% of women killed by men are murdered by someone they know. But knowing someone is not a phrase used exclusively for friendship or relationships, professional, romantic, or otherwise, or even family. In fact, I'm willing to bet that you all know a lot of people, but even more people know you. Think about it. There are hundreds of people you see every single day that vanish into the wash of life. Parents at drop-off, fellow morning coffee buyers, library clerks, volunteers at the local park. They're all part of the white noise that surrounds your day. And we assume this relationship is reciprocal. And for the most part, it probably is. But not always. How about an example? Let's say you ride the bus to work every single day. You walk to your local coffee shop, get a cup to go, board the bus at your usual stop, sit down in an empty seat, and put on your headphones while doom-scrolling social media for the 20 minutes it takes you to get to your destination. One day, a couple of stops into your ride, a man approaches you and asks you to take off your headphones. You oblige by hitting pause on whatever it is you're listening to and pulling one of your earbuds out in a hurry. But you do it so fast that the little plastic speaker catches on the cartilage of your ear and tugs, which kind of hurts and makes your arm jump and your coffee spill. Three large drops of coffee land on your new cream-colored pants. You are annoyed. The man smiles sheepishly and apologizes. He says that he's going somewhere different today. You blankly gaze back as this means nothing to you. He goes on to say that he dropped his phone down the sewer grate before his stop, and he doesn't know how to get where he's going without it. He asks if he can please use yours to call his friend. You quickly tell him you're sorry, but no, you are not comfortable with that. And then you plug back in. The man grits his teeth into an understanding smile utters a half-baked, oh, all right, no worries, and then returns to his seat. You immediately forget his face in the pattern of the coffee splotches on your pants. But he doesn't forget yours. You get off at your stop and hurry into your office, hoping you'll have time to put a little water on that coffee stain before your first meeting of the day. But that man stays on the bus. He is fuming. He sees you every single morning when he gets on that bus. The two of you have waved at one another. You talked about the weather once, when you both had sopping wet umbrellas. Even let you have his seat a couple years ago when he saw you had on shoes that made you limp. The man feels rejected and insulted. His intentions had been honest. He really did lose his phone. And if you had just let him make a call, he wouldn't have to do this but so be it. The man continues to ride the bus for eight straight hours, shifting seats, taking up as little space as possible, being invisible and planning until you finally get back on the bus. When the bus stops to let you and your cohorts on, he stands watching, waiting, and manages to position himself right behind your seat where he can see between the seats, through the gap. 
he sees the glowing screen of your phone as you doom scroll your way home, which is how he learns your name and your friends' names and what everyone is doing this week. He gets off at your stop and follows you home. You keep your headphones in, text your roommate, and walk at a don't talk to me clip. You unlock your front door and go inside, stopping in the front to toss your keys on the table. The man walks back to the bus stop and goes home. He does this exact same thing for 16 days, stopping to walk around your property silently to see all the windows and doors. He notices where the lights are on and where they're almost always off. By these patterns, he has determined which rooms are bathrooms and eventually which are bedrooms and who they belong to. On the 17th day, the air has turned warm and the windows in the house are open. The man has a utility knife in his breast pocket. And once most of the lights have gone out, he uses it to cut out the window screen in the downstairs bathroom. Taking a moment to acclimate himself, once he has climbed in, he locks the bathroom door and looks at the notes he has meticulously taken on his phone and makes a quick mental map of your home. Having traced your movements, he knows by now you have gone to bed. He slips off his shoes and leaves them next to the toilet and then slowly spins the lock back to vertical and creeps into the hallway, padding down the hardwood floor noiselessly in stocking feet before hesitating once and opening your door. And then the next morning, you are gone. Your roommate calls the police. She sees the cut screen and the lack of sheets on your bed. She observes your keys, wallet, cell phone, and computer, all things you couldn't have lived without. The police call you a runaway, saying they've seen it all before. A runaway, as though you were a petulant child. A few days later, your roommate finds herself lying on the floor in frustration and despair. She sighs into the smooth inside air that smells like your favorite jasmine-scented candle and rolls from her back to her belly. In doing so, her nose is now on the floorboards and her eyes, flush with a small crack, catch a familiar glimmer. She squints, refocuses, and realizes she is looking directly into a pair of eyes. Your eyes, which are unblinking and still. It dawns on her that They couldn't figure out where you went because you never left. Just then, your roommate hears the attic door creak open. She fills the silent air with a scream, turns on her heels and runs. The man carefully walks down the stairs, through the hall, and to the place in the floorboards where your eyes are just visible. He crouches down and looks directly into them. See what you made me do, he says, before following your roommate, utility knife in hand. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we We would be dead.
Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. Uh, This week, we are covering the disappearance and murder of Annie Lay. And this is a case that just about every woman, I think, personally, is going to find super chilling. Mm. We like to assume that we're safe in certain places, right? When you're home, you're safe. When you're in the building you work at, you're safe. Everywhere else, we're pretty much on guard. Yes. (laughs) But there's... Yeah. There's a couple of places where we like to assume that we're safe, but time and again, circumstances prove that we're not. And the constant looking over my shoulder this week, or rather past two weeks, has given me a very nasty crick in my neck. Ooh. You know, I also have a pinched nerve in my shoulder. I'm just like a terrible mess. Oh my goodness. But do you know what I've heard? What? I've heard that a little bit of icy cold validation can clear that right up oh wow yeah not only does validation make you look better but it can make you feel better too and it makes you sing it does there are really no downfalls to validation i i agree with that statement it's only good things i will stand by it me too i will die on that hill i will i'll die on a hill covered in validation validation that's right a hill worth dying on (laughs) Where is that t-shirt? <laughs> a hill worth dying on. <laughs> oh, my God. Every time I die on a hill, that's going to go through my head. There, every time. I do it fairly frequently. I like to make big, bold statements. Great. Well, that was fun. But lucky for us, you guys can uh, help with a little of that hill dying Validation. You just made that so Southern now. <laughs> that hill dying validation. Don't take me back to last time. <laughs> but yes, please help us. Yes. And if you would like to help, you can head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only thing that moves this podcast forward. And if you want a little more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can support us over on Patreon, where for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our weekly video after show, Host Mortem, all the episodes of our patrons-only podcast, 30-minute horror movies, some special extra minisodes. I have a few more of those planned for the near future. Awesome. Uh, because there are cases, you know, that are either unfinished or there isn't enough information to fill an entire episode. Yeah. So, I feel like those are good for us to discuss for our patrons. I think so, too. Yeah, and if you're not a patron, probably get on that because they're going to be very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to join tomorrow, probably. Nice. I'm very excited to get your patronage. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Patrons also get opportunities to Zoom with us and other patrons, a special gift in the mail, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all that is a little too much for you, you can simply share anything on any of our social media feeds to your social media feed. We are Would Be Dead Pod all over the land. Our Instagram also features full photo suites every week accompanying each case. It's kind of like the illustrations to our story. So you're going to want to go on over to Instagram and follow us right now. I'll wait. Just like, yeah, find us and then that's it. Follow. Good job. Very good. Mm You can also post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend. Tell a neighbor. Tell your campus security guard. What's his name? Mm, Well, I was thinking more of a female. Her name. See, that's Maz on me. So I am going to go with Camille. Camille. That's a boss name. I like it. Mm -hmm. She won't let shit go down. No, she's great. Yeah. She's great. She's always, she knows everyone's name in the dorm. Super alert. Yeah. 
Um, she will, she's always there. You can call her, you know, if you're walking in late, or you know, you she'll like know. Coming home alone or something. Yeah. yeah. Don't try to sneak your boyfriend in though. No, no, no. That's not no. a thing. Unless, unless he's on the approved list, mm-hmm. it's a no-go. Exactly. No sneaking. Agreed. Well, then your friends and Camille can become fiends and we, we need more, more of her. Yeah. More Camille's. <laughs> more Camille's to protect us all uh, and become fiends so that we can all hang out together. And we'll be very safe at this hang. Yeah, be a safe hang. I love a safe hang. We can all mark ourselves safe. We can. And if you want to mark yourself safe with We Would Be Dead on social media, we won't discourage it. No, go for it. Not safe from, though. We have done nothing. Mm -mm. We're not very threatening. Uh, And I think that's all I have for this week. I don't think I have any news. Do you, Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? So this is interesting. Oh, good. I don't have anything this week. I was so excited. Yeah. I'm sorry to let you down. Thought you really had something you were going to pull out of your hat. No, I'm just excited for this story. It's a lot. Yeah. Takes place in my hometown. I know we're back in Connecticut. (laughs) You love when we go to Connecticut. I do. I love it. Well, all right then. On with the show. So as I mentioned before, today we are talking about the scary and untimely murder, I mean all murders are untimely, of Annie Lay. So let's just start with a little information on Annie. This case is going to be pretty linear, which is not how I usually do it, but this one just kind of needs to be that way. So Annie Lay was born in San Jose, California in 1985 to parents Huang and Vivian Van Lay. So close to Vivian Lee. Who was that again? She was Scarlett O'Hara. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. so that's fun. Hmm. They came from very tight Vietnamese-American family and, and to a certain extent, community because they were both, you know, involved in it. And though Annie remained close enough to her parents for reasons unknown, she and her younger brother, Chris, were raised by her aunt and uncle. And they were known in the family as um, Annie and Chris's guardian parents. Okay. This is never, ever referred to as a negative thing. So I don't want people to think it's anything nefarious. It's always positive. It's just like, yeah, her aunt and uncle raised them and they had like a great childhood. These people were wonderful, loving parents who raised the kids in a very happy home alongside their three cousins. So really it was like she had four brothers. Nice. Yeah. The happily blended family lived in a house described by one publication as, quote, deep in the woods in Placerville, California. Placerville is located in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, and it clocks in at a whopping 5.8 square miles in size, which is not very big, but also not like, not the tiniest town we've talked about, definitely. It has, as of the 2010 census, just over 10,000 residents. So again, not big, but not micro-tiny. Placerville is a gold rush town, too, so it's filled with historic buildings and has been around since the days of the Pony Express. Oh, yeah. Fancy. Mm-hmm. Placerville is a pleasant enough name, but I prefer its original moniker, Hangtown. That sounds fun. Right? It was called Hangtown on account of all the hangings. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They sure did love a hanging. Yeah. I mean, an event every week or day, maybe. Uh, yeah, you're never bored. They don't like them anymore, but like, there was a time. What's the town called now? Placerville. I think it's pronounced Placerville. I actually didn't look this up, but it's spelled P-L-A-C-E-R-V-I-L-L-E. 
sounds right. Well, if I got it wrong, I proactively apologize and you can <laughs> slander me all over the town. Great. There you go. Anyway, it's a lovely place to live with lots of lakes and coffee shops and hiking trails. There's a main street and a downtown area and lots of room to breathe for residents. So you have like a lot of room on your property in most places. You're not in a development like we talked about in the Megan Kanka episode where right. you're super close to one another. This is spaced out. Right. It's a, it's a great place to hang. I see what you did there. Yeah. Good job. Annie enjoyed a pretty idyllic childhood in this atmosphere. She excelled in school and attended the El Dorado Catholic Church regularly. Her pastor, Monsignor James Kidder, remembers her as, quote, a rare person, a person who is naturally good. A rare person. A rare person. He goes on to say that, quote, she was lots of fun and had a wicked sense of humor. Oh, that's what people say about me. Oh, my gosh. Maybe you should go hang out in Placerville. Yeah. Hang down. Hang down. Yeah. Annie attended Union Mine High School. What a name. Where she took a special interest in science and math. Just like you too, right? Yeah. Mine High School. Science and math. Hmm. Perfect. She was also voted most likely to be the next Einstein. Oh, I did not get that. No. No. Which is a really fun superlative to have. Yeah. Kind of. We had we had something like that. Did you? I don't. I don't know if it was necessarily it's not like Einstein. scientific mind or something. Most likely yeah. to be the next Einstein. Yeah, but that's like silly. Yeah, it is. I like it. But she was voted that by her graduating class. Wow. And speaking of graduation, Annie was also the valedictorian of the old Union Mine High School graduating class of two thousand and three. Great. Yes. So she deserved that. Uh, she, yeah, she deserved the next Einstein thing. Not only did Annie receive top academic marks, but she also spent most of her senior year finding and winning academic scholarships. Okay. All things told, she was able to net around $160,000 in scholarships. Wow. Which is so much. Yeah. Which she used to attend the University of Rochester in New York for her undergrad. Okay. While at the University of Rochester, Annie majored in cell developmental biology and mired, minored in medical anthropology. What <laughs> is that? Wow. Right? That's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome and complicated. That is, that, that's just a, a smart person's degree. Smart right person's salad right there, yeah. yeah. So you might be wondering, if you're not a biology genius, what are those things? Well, cell developmental biology, quote, focuses on understanding the structures and behaviors of cells, the interaction between cells, and the mechanisms controlling the assembly of groups of cells functioning in organisms. So now you understand it. Yeah. That was much better, right? <laughs> and medical anthropology You're so is... confused. Mm. <laughs> yeah. A lot of it has to do with, um, like, genetics and stuff, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Medical anthropology, which does not confuse me, is the study of how health and illness are shaped, experienced, and understood in the light of global, historical, and political forces. And holy Hannah, that is a lot to study all at once. Yeah. They go hand in hand. I suppose they can, sure. Mm -hmm. When one is a research degree and the other has to do a lot with, I guess, how your research will affect mm -hmm. the people it affects. Eventually. Research and development. Cell development, if yeah. you will. Yes. Yeah. Basically, what Annie wanted to do was to help find a cure for serious diseases like certain cancers, diabetes, and muscular dystrophy. Okay. Everyone that. said she really wanted, she went into medicine, as I'm assuming everyone who goes into medicine does, because she really wanted to help people. And I can't imagine that 
medical research is uh, carries a lot of immediate rewards. It's something you have to really kind of want to do. Right. So I think that speaks to what kind of a person she was quite a bit. Now, while at Rochester, Annie not only built up her ever more impressive by the moment academic resume, but she also met the love of her life. Oh, yeah. Jonathan Wadowski. Also, apologies if I mispronounced your last name, Jonathan. It is spelled W-I-D-A-W-S-K-Y. Jonathan, who was also an ambitious scholar, was working towards both his B.A. in mathematics and his B.S. in physics. And the two fell absolutely, completely, and madly in love. Oh, no. Jonathan's sister said they were, quote, more than soulmates. They were best friends. Annie lit up his life and, she, and he lit up hers. Their relationship was truly special. And everyone who knew the two agreed. There's like a ton of quotations that are saying basically the exact same thing. So these were genuinely in love young people. So you're just setting this up to be such a sad tale. Yeah. So after four successful years at Rochester, both Annie and Jonathan were accepted to Ivy League graduate schools. Annie would be a doctoral student of pharmacology at Yale, and Jonathan was on track for a Ph.D. in physics at Columbia. For those doing the distance math, Columbia and Yale are just about an hour and a half apart by car. I know they are different states, so sometimes that makes you think maybe it'll be super far away, but it's not. Right. So this wasn't an enormous deal for the highly motivated pair. They also, if they didn't happen to have cars, I know they're yeah, which I don't students, really know. That would be like a bus that would be available on campuses to go from oh. uh, New Haven, which is where Yale is, mm-hmm. to New York uh, City. New York. Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't know if Annie had a car or not, but I do know she took public transportation to get to like her, the lab and stuff. So yeah. mm-hmm. probably she didn't. Mm-hmm. And like Amtrak is right there. So it's nice. very easy to get around. So Jonathan is living in New York City and Annie is in New Haven, Connecticut. Now, I always thought that New Haven was a safe area considering the Yale student body was probably a pretty large portion of the population. But Previous cases have proved that I know nothing about Connecticut. (laughs) It just seems safe. But fortunately, Leslie knows a lot of things about Connecticut. I do. Back to your homeland we go. (laughs) So, Leslie, why don't you set the stage a little bit for us? Give us some uh, Connecticut info. Sure. I mean, I'm only going to make you think that it's safer, too, than it is. Than it New is Haven in some is areas. not that safe. It's a city. It's still a city. So yeah. you have but to think of it. But it's actually marginally less safe than other cities, too. Yes. According to the crime rates. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. I blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh well, but I guess if you if you visited it, then you would know I wouldn't be like, oh, this nice safe place. I'd be like, oh no. No, it's just a straight up tiny city. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. It looks like a little Philadelphia with like a school and a, there's hospitals and there's mm-hmm. the and there's Yale and there's a downtown area, but you got to stay in like the right areas to. I don't know why I just never. My brain has a hard time processing like beautiful old college campuses in major cities. Oh, okay. I know it exists because Penn's like a weird oasis in Philly where you're yeah. suddenly at an Ivy League school. At right. least some of it is, but but. Mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know, the two just stand so apart. I think it's because I went to an East Coast boarding school, which looks like a college, but isn't, and just exists in a small town and has big grassy campuses and stuff. Right. Even the college I went to, the campus is beautiful, but right on the outskirts is horrible. 
crime rates. Yeah. I mean, I went to school in Center City, Philly, but I also didn't go to like a typical looking college. Right. So I just don't see the same. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's just a weird little diversion. Tell us yeah. about Connecticut. Okay. So I, I split this up into a couple of different things because I Excellent. knew we were going to talk about Yale and I knew we were talking about New Haven. So first, we're going to talk about a couple of little Connecticut fun facts. Please. So Connecticut is the home of the first dictionary. Oh. Noah Webster was born in West Hartford, Connecticut. While working as a school teacher in Connecticut, Webster found that the education system needed reconsideration. So he began writing his own books in American English. The first dictionary was published in 1806, and we know it as the Webster's Dictionary today. And you can even visit Noah Webster's house in West Hartford if you'd like to learn more. Oh, I like to picture that, like, everything in his house is labeled with its definition. Door, chair, <laughs> curtain, and then there's the definition and part of speech under it. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be great. <laughs> uh, in Hartford, it's illegal to cross the street by walking on your hands. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> I was gonna do. Don't do Ooh, it. Thank you for telling me. The oldest published newspaper in America is the Hartford Current. Hmm. To be considered a pickle in Connecticut, it must bounce. What? The food pickle? <laughs> yeah. This is not like I'm in a pickle. No, yeah. Oh, okay. No, like an actual pickle. It's only considered a pickle if it bounces. Otherwise, huh. take it off the shelves. It's out of here. Are people bouncing their pickles that much? Well, in 1948... <laughs> A pickle packer in Hartford dropped one of his briny wares in front of reporters to prove it was fresh enough to bounce. It didn't. Oh, no. And police arrested the man and slapped him with a fine of $500. (gasps) Also, they destroyed his vegetables. Oh, no. Pickle pickle packer. Yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) So that's just the lore around that a pickle has to bounce. It doesn't have to. You're going to get arrested if your pickles don't bounce. That sounds like a euphemism. Yeah. Uh, Don't be bouncing your pickles. (laughs) Don't be bouncing them. Watch it. So in New Haven, uh, the New Haven Green was built large enough to accommodate the number of people who would be spared in the second coming of Christ. What? This number was 144,000. Thousand. Okay. Yeah. Why? Why did they do that? Are they super religious? Well, yeah, there is like that sector there. I mean, remember all the all... witches getting getting hanged and burned at the stake in Connecticut? I, I remember the Massachusetts ones. Connecticut, yeah. too? Oh, yeah, the ton. We talked nice. about them. Remember Goody Bassett? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I do remember that. But also, they were like, they all have to fit in this one place. Yeah, there's just an area where they cool, can all go. Great. Do they have to be like smushed up against each other or are they comfortably I mean, standing probably, in it? I mean, I don't think they care. They're about to get saved by Christ. They're going somewhere else. <laughs> they don't need a lot of room. No, they're just like, we can sardine pack it, Got it. right now. Okay. Okay. All right. And then to the pearly gates we go. Bye. Yeah. Great. Okay. In Orange, Connecticut, it is the home of the delicious Pez Candy Museum, manufacturer, and the world's tallest Pez dispenser. Oh boy. You can learn more than you may ever want to know about the production of Pez candy and their famous character shaped dispensers at the Pez Museum. I bet you can. Mm-hmm. Orange Connecticut always makes me laugh when I drive through it because it's so unlike all of the other names surrounding it. Yeah. It's like Danfordshire Berry <laughs> and Orange. Orange. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
We can thank Ezra Warner, a Waterbury native, for his invention of the first U.S. can opener in 1858. After its invention, many grocery stores carried can openers so store clerks could open cans for customers to take home, as most people didn't have can openers at home. Get a can opener. And then I like this little fact. Pumpkin heads originated here. Using cut pumpkins, hairdressers created uniformly shaped haircutting guides. So like the bowl cut, but with like pumpkins. Oh, no. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. My, my pumpkin has a bowl cut. <laughs> All right. So these are some Yale fun facts. So okay. now we're, we're going to New Haven Tell and we're on the Yale. campus, right? So Mr. Burns from The Simpsons is one of many famous fictional alumni of Yale. Is he a Skull and Bones member? He probably is. I do talk about the Skull and Bones later. Yeah. (laughs) Yale is home to the oldest collegiate daily newspaper still in existence. Printed five days a week since January 28, 1878, the Yale Daily News lives up to its moniker. My friend Rory Gilmore was the editor of the Yale Daily News. Friend of yours? Yes. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yale also claims the oldest and most well-known a cappella group, the Whiffenpoofs. I also talk about the Whiffenpoofs. I love them. I had a very interesting night with the Whiffenpoofs in college. <laughs> that is not a euphemism. That is a truthemism. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. So the Whiffenpoofs have been singing on Monday nights since 1909. And uh, so my friend Rory Gilmore, yeah, her grandfather it. Richard Gilmore was also a Whiffenpoof. Get out of here. Yeah, wild. Did you, is that who you hung out with? No. Okay. He's a little old for you. Yeah, a little bit. Yale's mascot is Handsome Dan, who is the sweetest little bulldog. Oh, I was going to say, is this a guy? No, it's, like, it's I'm a, Handsome Dan. No. Yale loves me. It's a sweet little bulldog. Even better. Although, so what if it was just a guy named Handsome Dan? Well, there is a guy in the mascot suit. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Probably female, too, at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And my last fact for Yale is that Yale University is organized into 12 self-governing residential colleges, each with its own dormitories, dining halls, library, and social events. Each also has its own proud traditions, including jello wrestling, weekly group screams at 11, tripping, uh, stripping down during the third quarter of football games. Proud traditions. Proud traditions. I love the uh, group screams. It's probably the School of Medicine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And then these are some must-sees and do's in New Haven. So this is around the campus now. So you can get a burger at Lewis's Lunch Sandwich Shop, said to be the birthplace of the hamburger. One day in 1900, a gentleman hurriedly walked into Lewis's Lunch and told proprietor Lewis Lassen he was in a rush and wanted something he could eat on the run. Mm -hmm. In an instant... Lewis placed his own blend of ground steak trimmings between two slices of toast and sent the gentleman on his way. And so, the most recognizable American sandwich was born. <laughs> now I want a hamburger. Yeah, and you can get it there the same way, and they only have a couple things it's on the menu. It's still like jammed up steak and toast. It's like four different types nice. of uh, of meat, I guess, that's grounded daily, mm. fresh. And so you can only get a hamburger or cheeseburger. Okay. And I believe it comes with lettuce, tomato, onion, and relish. Get your and then you can get a salad, which is potato salad. And they have sodas and maybe a bag of chips. Okay. And that's it. That's the only thing on the menu. I'm here for it. Yeah. And there's like specific ways you have to order it too. Okay. I will pick off my own onions then. It's fine. <laughs> there's probably a cool way you can like ask for like 
I don't know. Like, no rings. No more tears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Cupcakes at Sugar Bakery, who you may know as the winner of the famous Food Network show, Cupcake Wars. <gasps> they have at least 36 flavors to choose from every day. They also have a food truck you can catch around town. So fun fact, the um, one of the judges of Cupcake Wars, Florian Belanger, made my the croquembouche for my wedding. Awesome. He's a lovely, lovely, wonderful man. You should patronize all of his businesses. Very cool. In the way that you buy things, not like taunt him. He's very nice. Great. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. If you're into cigars, bourbon, and craft beers, you can enjoy yourself at the Al Shop Cigar Lounge. The leather couches are comfortable and the wood-paneled walls help to set the mood. The Al Shop has some of the finest bourbons in the world, too. I love bourbon. Mm -hmm. I'm going. Zinc is a restaurant in New Haven that has an amazing duck nachos. I'm about that. Yeah. It sounded good. That does sound yes. good. I don't even need details and I'm already for it. <laughs> you can catch a concert at Toad's Place. This dive bar venue is standing room only and... Though it's not large, it is popular enough that some amazing acts come through, but small enough that you can easily end up talking to the band outside, which I have That's done fun. before. It's really Thank cool. You. Yes. How cool. Five Mile Point Light, also known as Five Mile Point Lighthouse or Old New Haven Harbor Lighthouse, is a picturesque lighthouse in New Haven on the harbor entrance to Long Island Sound, five miles from downtown New Haven, hence the name Five Mile Point. The lighthouse is part of the Lighthouse Point Park, so people frequent the area for picnics and barbecues in the summer. So this is like a safer place that yeah. you're thinking of. Mm -hmm. Basically, if you want to enjoy the coastline without venturing too far from the city, this is the perfect place to be. You can swim or simply enjoy the wide expanse of beach, taking in the views of New Haven's skyline across the water. Plus, there's a carousel and dogs are allowed. So Zero can go. Oh, he loves it. But, but... Lighthouses, full of ghosts. Oh, for sure. So not that safe. Especially we should, there. We should do an episode on spooky lighthouses. Yeah. We have one. We do. And <laughs> not, I have not like in my yard, it. but like mm -hmm. Kate May does. Um, this is one of my favorite things. Okay. Um, this is actually in Yale. If you want to feel like Giles and Willow or Hermione Granger, you'll definitely want to walk around the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. One of the world's largest libraries devoted entirely to rare books and manuscripts. It is Yale University Library's principal repository of literary archives, early manuscripts, and rare books. Located at the center of Yale University, the six-story building does not have any glass windows. Instead, it has walls made of a translucent Danby marble. Whoa, mm -hmm. that's intense. Which transmits subdue lighting, and provide protection from the books from direct light. To protect its books, in the event of a fire, you have 30 seconds to get out before the library is flooded with lethal but fire-suppressing gas. What? In the case of any other threats to the book's collection, that entire cube structure drops down into an underground vault that sucks all the oxygen out of the air. Holy shit. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That is insane. But did you know that Harvard has a book bound in human skin? I did. Yes. You did? I did. Of course. I've seen it. I feel like it should be at Yale's if they have that crazy thing. Yeah. Well, Harvard should like just competing acquiesce and let them have it. They have the better. They have the way crazier library. Their walls are made of like paper thin marble. That's nuts. I know. It's wild. 
Mm-hmm. It really is. I, it's really cool. That is really cool. Yeah. I like that fun fact. That was, I like really want to see it. I bet you can't see it. I bet they don't let people in it. They do. They do? Yeah. Yeah, you can go in. I want to go that's in. Why, that's why I mentioned it. Oh, yeah. Go see it. Oh, man. I'm going to go see it for sure. Anyway. <laughs> and go to like the Pez Factory. Get a little Pez <laughs> afterwards because you're going to be disquieted by that weird library situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, safety is actually a bit of an issue in New Haven, which like maybe they should ramp it up because they got all them rare ass books yeah, <laughs> within the mm-hmm. city limits. But I thought not nearly as much within the campus gates of Yale, right? Not as dangerous once you're right. on campus. Right, they should be like shielded, it feels like. Except, oh no, I would be wrong again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yale has an estimated 14.7 incidents per 1,000 students. Give New Jersey all the shit you want, but Rutgers only has 9.13 incidents per 1,000 students. Yeah. So ask someone on the street if they think Yale is safer than Rutgers. I bet you they're 100% of the time going to say no. Now, is Rutgers... Or yes, sorry. They're going to say Yale is safer. Right. Is Rutgers more on an actual campus? Because Yale has a campus, but they are also sprawled out through the city. Like the dorm rooms. You know how Boston University is? I've never been ever to Boston been University, um, but I mean, well, I can guess. Boston University is like in Boston mm-hmm. compared to like Boston College. So some of their dorm rooms just look like apartment buildings and it's just in the city. And that's how I feel Yale is on some of the, they have little campus yeah, spots. Yeah, is but, like, is more of a college, is a campus campus. It's not as yeah. spread out, but it's also people are going to dog on New Brunswick way more than they are going to oh, yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. New Haven mm-hmm. is basically what I'm saying. Okay. And I just think it's funny that that's totally opposite. It's not the truth at all. And back to Annie Lay, who we were talking about before, she was very much aware of the safety issues within the city she lives. She even wrote an article for B Magazine, which is a Yale medical school publication entitled Crime and Safety in New Haven. Hmm. Annie ends that article with this sentence, quote, In short, New Haven is a city, and all cities have their perils. But with a little street smarts, one can avoid becoming yet another statistic. End quote. Which is a pretty awful thing to read, considering what happens from here forward. Mm -hmm. But it does prove that Annie kept her own safety in mind and was not making rash decisions all over the town regarding it. Annie's friend Jennifer Simpson commented, do you know how hard it was to not say Jessica Simpson? Really hard. (laughs) Jennifer Simpson commented, quote, Annie always made sure she was safe. She doesn't walk around at night by herself. If she had to work late, she would make sure someone could come pick her up or walk with her. So she kept safety in mind at all times. Great. By September of 2009, Annie and Jonathan were both entering the third year of their respective programs. The pair were very happily engaged at this point. Nice. And in the final planning stages of their scheduled for September 13th wedding. So back to school and then married right away. Okay. That's intense. I mean, unless they just kind of like parlayed their schooling all year long and didn't break in the summer or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Annie's friends and family all remember that she was over the moon about her wedding. She loved the planning process. She spent a lot of time with her family and her soon-to-be in-laws ironing out every little detail, and was counting down the days until I do. She even had a little countdown in her house with like her housemates going of days until her wedding. And she was charting the upcoming weather patterns too. Oh, of course. To like 
try and make sure she had a sunny, warm day. Or like, you can't really make sure, but kind of prepare for what was coming. Right. Yeah. I mean, you start doing that a year in advance. (laughs) That's the science-minded bride right there. Also, I don't know how she was juggling it all personally. You just did this. Planning a wedding is essentially a full-time job. It is. It takes forever. Yeah. And she was also working on a degree in pharmacology, an advanced degree, like she's in a PhD program, spending long hours researching in a lab, and she also worked in the lab. Annie was studying, quote, how fatty acids regulate an enzyme believed to be involved in the development of metabolic diseases. I love it. Yeah. She was doing that, working in the research lab, because I think that's part of getting your degree. You also have to be like a research assistant and stuff. That's what Mm -hmm. she was doing. And planning this wedding. Yeah. That sounds like so much to me. It is. Yeah. Annie's research also, uh, for those who may need to know this, involves live mice. I know some of you are going to really, really, really hate that. And I get it. So I'm just being upfront about it right now. There will be no graphic descriptions of it, though the mice do play a very small part in this moving forward. Oh, boy. Yeah. And if it's any comfort to those of you who are horrified by the mouse situation, Aside from the lab mice, Annie was a very avid animal lover and once rescued an entire little litter of kittens herself. Great. She kept one and loved it very much. Cute. September 8th was just like any other day as far as Annie was concerned when she woke up that morning. Five days till the wedding, work to do in the lab. Annie left the house she shared with five other roommates early that morning and took Yale Transit to the Sterling Hall of Medicine building on Yale's campus where her office was located. So she had an office, which for a student is a pretty good position to be in. Mm -hmm. Annie checked in at her office. I imagine she checked her email and did a little work, stuff you do kind of in the morning to prepare for your day. Then she made her way to the lab, leaving her purse, cell phone, credit cards, and cash locked up tight in her office. And she walked from her office building to the lab. They were very close together. After all, one of the tips she included in her article on safety was to travel with as little on your person as possible so she wouldn't be bringing anything with her. Right. Annie entered the Amistad Street building where her lab was located just after 10 a.m. This is documented on security cameras. That happened for sure. As is her arrival and departure from her office. So they they can track her doing these specific things because... As much as the area might not be super safe, Yale is covered in security cameras. This was the last time anyone would hear from Annie or see her alive again. Oh, wow. And remember, I just said she entered the building. Right. By 9 p.m., when Annie had not returned home, nor has she called, texted, or checked in on social media, her roommate Natalie Powers decided that she was worried enough to call the damn cops. Thank you. Yes, way to go, Natalie. She immediately said this simply wasn't like Annie. Annie was a very punctual person. I don't know what that's like. I assume it's nice. (laughs) She was never late. She certainly would never, ever go radio silent and make people worry. And I think that she, this isn't confirmed in sources, but I think I read it somewhere else that she had also reached out to Annie's fiance and people that she would have supposedly checked in with during the day and no one had spoken to her. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So police responded to the call immediately, and they also spoke with Annie's loved ones and sifted through security footage. Annie, as it turns out, had basically just gone silent since she left her apartment that day. No one could really account for her whereabouts. Initially, police suspected that she had panicked about her upcoming wedding and fled. They thought, oh, she's just a runaway bride. 
because all women are runaways or runaway brides. They just put a veil on it. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that. Every time you're like... It's terribly sad. It is. comical because Mm -hmm. I mean, even in this day and age, like she just had enough. She definitely ran away. Yeah. Like all of those women Ted Bundy murdered, they all ran away. I can't. Ugh. Even though friends and family assured the New Haven police that no, this was not like Annie. She was very excited for her wedding. She had planned their honeymoon in Greece. She had everything like set out for this. She was not going to just run away. The police still kind of kept that thought at the front of their minds because they can't let go of a runaway. They just love it. Of course. And then a curious thing showed up on the security footage. The police realized that Annie Lay had entered the lab that morning, but never left. Mm-hmm. No camera, ID checkpoint, or fellow researcher could identify when Annie managed to leave the building. And there were more than 70 cameras in that building and around the premises alone. Wow. Yeah, so it's not like you could do a lot of things without being caught on these cameras. Right, so she has to be somewhere. Exactly. The police were like, oh, maybe she climbed out of a bathroom window or something. She I don't know. really wanted to run away from this wedding. Well, that's and what they, the they just want that narrative so badly. Yeah. But it's not likely because at just four foot 11 inches tall and 90 pounds, Annie wasn't hurling herself from a window and walking away with no damage sight unseen. Mm. No, she'd probably just like soar out. She'd just float so, gently yeah. to the ground. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. Plus, I don't know. I feel like hefting herself out of that window might be hard. I don't know. She could have been super athletic, but I'm just like, I don't think that's not likely. It didn't didn't happen happen. anyway. So police decide to shut down the lab building and begin to search. Smart. That's what you should be doing. They also searched the dumpsters on campus and the trash incineration site at the dump in Hartford. So if if they had dropped off trash from these dumpsters previously, they they like traced all the points to see if they found anything. Nothing. They also brought in bloodhounds to search. Cursory searches showed up nothing. And the FBI were brought in pretty quickly. Wow, okay. But nothing seemed to be adding up. There was no trace of Annie. Nothing suspicious in her emails or on her phone. Because remember, they have everything. They have her laptop. They have her phone. They have her credit cards. cards. She's not making charges other places in the country or something with her bank account. She's not withdrawing money. No activity. Nothing is happening And nothing is happening in her apartment or office. And nothing is off kilter there either. It's not like she had been to these places and gotten her stuff and left or something. They're untouched. Then, on September 10th, several of Annie's associates came forward with some curious information. I think they did not think this was relevant immediately because these are not suspicious people. And I'll tell you why in a second. Two co-workers claimed to have seen a lab technician named Ray Clark pushing a cart so like the little metal cart with all the supplies on it. Yeah. With a box of sterile gloves on it. But the box had blood splatter all over one side of it. Ooh, suspicious. Exactly. Furthermore, as Ray approached these um, associates of Annie's, he tried to angle the cart so they couldn't see that side of the box, mm. which is shifty as all get out. But the reason, now, now you and I are probably like, uh, a bloody box is super suspicious. Why would you immediately not think that was weird? Well, they worked in a lab with live animals. And part of them was like, oh, you know, maybe something happened. Maybe it was a mice or something. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get into it, but I mentioned earlier, live animals. Shit happens. Yeah, of course. And it could have been. Mm -hmm. So, plus, 
we've talked about this so many times. Your brain does not immediately jump to the worst conclusion. Right. You you rationalize and go, oh, this is the most, this answer makes the most sense to me. And it's not, oh, this guy just murdered a girl. Right. So. I can see that. Yeah. Makes sense. But it's shifty. That's for sure. During his interview, because after that, the cops were like, well, we should probably talk to Ray Clark. Yes. During his interview, he did admit that he had seen Annie that day. He worked for the lab for some time, and so he knew who she was, but they did not socialize. He said that approximately at 12.45 p.m. that day, the fire alarm had been set off by the lab's autoclave. Is that how you pronounce that? I've never said that word out loud. Autoclave? Yeah. The thing that sterilizes metal stuff. Sure. It's like It looks like a little microwave. You like close the door and it steam yeah. sterilizes everything. Okay. Well, that set off the fire alarm in the lab. And Ray said he thought he saw Annie leave when the alarm sounded. So I'm guessing it's some sort of evacuation situation when the fire alarm goes off, obviously. Mm-hmm. He said Annie was wearing a yellow lab coat and a brown skirt and said she carried a notebook and two bags of mouse food. Okay. Mouse chow. Mouse chow. <laughs> or whatever it is. But Annie's key card only showed her entering the building at 10, 11 a.m. And if she had re-entered after leaving for during a fire drill or something, it would have been on there. Yeah. And the fire alarm did go off. That was true. And there's footage of that happening and a record of it wherever you keep record of when fire alarms go off. But there was no footage of Annie leaving the building at all in any of the on any of the cameras or returning. But Rayshore was there hmm. looking real shifty and nervous. Ray had actually gone in and out of that building an abnormal amount of times that day. Okay. Police also, during his interview, noticed that Ray had scratches up and down his arms. And when they asked him about them, he said that his cats had gotten him. That's all. Yeah, they do that. Those cats. On September 10th, the police, so now she's been missing for two days, the police performed an extensive search of the lab. And during this, they found the bloody box of gloves that the lab text or lab I don't know who they were. They worked with Annie. The other mm-hmm. people in the lab had, ta- had told them about. So it checks out that was in a recycling box along with an extra large lab coat with red stains on it. Oh, cryptic. Upon further investigation, police also discovered hidden under a panel in the drop ceiling, a blood-stained rubber, rubber glove and a sock. Hmm. Just one sock. They also found a blood-covered work boot labeled Ray C. Okay. And a blue hospital scrub shirt similar to a shirt that Ray has been seen wearing on video surveillance Mm. and a few other little items. Investigators also found blood stains in the lab rooms and evidence that someone had attempted to clean, according to police affidavits. Police and lab employees had also firsthand witnessed Ray scrubbing an already clean drain earlier in the day. He was was bleaching it real good. (laughs) Come on, Ray. You had your name in your boots? Just wrote wrote your name in them? Yeah. You got to burn those fucking boots, dude. This is... I don't know. What is this amateur? This is wild. I know. Surely <laughs> the lab had chemicals that would have removed Sharpie on a Timberland, but I I don't think he thought of that, I guess. Suddenly, Ray's not looking so good right now. Right. And the police begin to dig into things further. Meanwhile, though, the media had caught hold of this story and spread it far and wide like wildfire. 
a young, beautiful, promising scientist had gone missing from an Ivy League school, and it was on the front page of every outlet imaginable. But this garnered what, in my opinion, was some very weird backlash from certain media sources. Suddenly, people were angry because the case of a missing Ivy League student had gotten so much attention when other non-Ivy Leaguers went missing and received far less attention from the media. One journalist, no, you know what? I'm going to just say his name because I think this is insane. Slate contributor Jack Schaefer said, quote, journalists almost everywhere observe this rough rule of thumb. Three murders at a Midwestern college equal one murder at Harvard or Yale. Hmm. What the fuck, journalists? What are you talking about? I mean, I read a lot of murder, murder articles, like more than your average lady, even more than your average true crime lady. I'm a murder encyclopedia, and I have not once noticed a disproportionate amount of attention given to college cases that occurred on Ivy League campuses. This feels grabby to me. Yeah. I could be wrong. Maybe I am. I hope that I'm right. But you know what? Here's the other thing. Fine. Throw those statistics that you seem to be making up in your head around when a white girl goes missing. We have talking talked about missing white girl syndrome before. They do get more attention than others. It is true. But Annie was not a white girl. She was Vietnamese. And Asian women are not notoriously well represented in the media when they go missing at all. So why are we mad that people are furiously talking about Annie? Why are we mad at all? I agree. I, I get, oh, it frustrates me. Why are you qualifying horrible events? Right. That's the problem. Because even if there is a lack of media attention on the other cases, yeah. it shouldn't belittle this case that's happening right now. Yeah, we don't pour them out at the expense of something that is still a horrible event. Right. I, I, I just, it, this really... This whole like, well, she was an Ivy League student. Nobody should have, we shouldn't have talked that much about this case. Really gets me mad. Why would you ever say such a thing? Yeah. It's just the wrong way to say it. It is the wrong way to I say under, it. It's like, I understand the problem. Yeah. But... They're saying like there's a certain amount of elitism involved in the media. Mm -hmm. And because she had more money or whatever, she was mm -hmm. more valuable. But that also wasn't the case with her. This is the girl who like fundraised herself a ton of scholarships yeah. and stuff. No, I think, it, I think it's just that it's Yale. It's just Yale. And that's the interesting factor. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to say I, I've never heard of Ivy League murders happening. Obviously, I'm talking about this case. But this is not the usual avenue that we go down with, like, a notoriously Ivy League story. Mm -hmm. Also, a side note, I always thought the Ivy Leagues were called that because of the centuries-old ivy that lines the exterior walls of their hallowed halls. It's a romantic idea, right? Sure. And some sources say, yes, that this is where the name comes from. And it does date back to a newspaper article in the 1830s where a reporter referred to the ivy, and that's why they called them ivies. But others disagree. Another explanation is that originally there were just four Ivy League schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Dartmouth, and that the Roman numeral for four is ivy. Mm -hmm. So they were the Ivy Leagues. I tell you this not only because I like weird trivia, but also because the combination of these two things, plus the fact that there's no way for us to know exactly which one of them is right, perfectly encapsulates the Ivy Leagues all around. They're old, elite, beautiful institutions of higher learning built on extremely old money, and they're rather confusing at times. Yes. 
And they're confusing in like the whitest way possible. Yeah. But when I think of Ivy League crime, I imagine some like insane Mayflower family type scandals. Mm -hmm. That's not, I just, this case does not smack of that to me at all. When I first read the headline about this case, it said something about like, shocking murder occurs at Yale. And I immediately thought it would be like a Skull and Bones Society thing. Of course. Now, the Skull and Bones, if you don't know what they are, are a secret society that touts quite a few former um, presidents as members, as well as nine former members of the U.S. Supreme Court, research scientists that helped create the atomic bomb, highly decorated military leaders, and more. But mostly it seems like they just give each other dorky and vaguely racist nicknames and then hold debates in their wood-paneled gothic library of a private meeting hall. Then they go party on a private island that is now basically condemned. Yes. And probably spend a couple hours creating another secret handshake they can giggle about on the yacht they get for graduation. But there are those who believe that the Skull and Bone Society is quote, on a quest to create a new world order that restricts individual freedoms and places ultimate power solely in the hands of a small cult of wealthy, prominent families. Skull and Bones has already succeeded in infiltrating nearly every major, major research, policy, financial, media, and government institution in the country. Skull and Bones, in fact, has been running the United States for years. I believe this. Do you? Yeah. Really? There's, There's so, so many of them. There's so many people. They're so dorky. And I mean, I'm, they are dorky, mm -hmm. yes. It's funny, but I believe that. It's also That's some happening. real QAnon-style <laughs> shit. Oh, yeah. I don't super believe it because for two reasons. One, look at the Skull and Bones photos and literature and tell me those guys are masterminding world domination. No. Well, they're trying to. They just come from money and power and therefore have attained positions of money and power. Well, that's what I'm saying, that they're in the positions and it's all about who you know and you're networking. Right, but here's the other thing. The Skull and Bones... Um, pride themselves in having like a little bit of everything mm -hmm. and none of them agree. Mm -hmm. so, so like they're not all just the same like high power attorney style guys. Right. They're also, and this is a direct quotation, they like to pick an acapella singer, specifically a whiff and poof. Yeah, um, of course. A drunk with an average of, with a 94 average, the captain of the football team and a black guy if they can find one because that's how it's phrased. I can't make this shit up. A new world order those men do not make, but they are thrown around in all sorts of nefarious sentences. So when you say crime at Yale or Ivy League crime, that's what I think of. Okay. Not like the a horrible, awful thing happening to a young Asian woman. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting that I felt like the media went one direction and it was not that one. Anywho, to create a little balance... Leslie, why don't you tell us the story of some non-Ivy League students? Give us a couple examples so that we can include their names here as well in the interest of fairness. All right. I picked two. Great. So 19-year-old Maximilian Johnson was a mm. freshman at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Just before 1 a.m. on March 9, 2002, Max was in his dorm room with his girlfriend when he answered a knock at the door. At the door, an assailant, holding a gun, demanded money. Before much more could happen, the assailant shot Max in the chest and fled. Oh, no. Police and first responders arrived on scene around 1 a.m., and Max was immediately pronounced dead, and the assailant was never identified. Oh, my God. 
Max's parents would go on to sue the university, but the school claims that they had appropriate security measures in place. Southern University claims that this was an unfortunate and unforeseeable event that took place and had no duty to protect individuals engaged in criminal activity. Mm -hmm. And here they are talking about the fact that Max was in possession of illegal drugs at the time of his death, and these illegal drugs being marijuana and in his possession, meaning they were found in his room. Oh, no. And could have also been his roommates, his girlfriends, whatever. Yeah, but that's it's just like dirty. I don't like that at all. Yeah. But also, like, what college student doesn't have weed? I don't, I don't know Probably any. the ones we're talking about in this episode. Well, but yes. Unless he was living in the straight-edge dorms, uh, find me an under-college, underage college student who wasn't drinking or smoking illegally. Absolutely. Yeah. So an interesting piece to this is that Max actually just moved into the storm room not that long ago. He was in the process of switching rooms with another student, and apparently this hadn't been approved by the school yet. So some believe that the assailant was confused to see Max there and may have meant to either steal from somebody else or or just kill somebody else. They, they don't oh, know. Shit. It might not have been for Max. Oh, my God. That really is like a college security issue. Mm-hmm. But there isn't much on this case, so I don't know if there was any other reason uh, that he could have been gunned down. And Max, so just a little bit, because that's really it. That's all that there is. I Mm -hmm. tried to search other venues. This is, that's the most of the story I can get. But just a little on Max, he was on the path to become a lawyer and was an excellent student and a hard worker. Huh. Yeah. That's awful. I know. All right. My other case is a historical case. Okay. So Janine Cleary, Janine Cleary couldn't wait to go to Tulane University in New Orleans. So this is another like she almost went to New Orleans in the fall of 1984. Tulane was a family school. Both her older brothers graduated from Tulane and her parents were on the university's parent council. She had already been accepted and was set to play for the school's tennis team. Everything was looking good until her parents had a private meeting with the university president who told them of a horrible murder of Tulane sophomore Karen Minkin, who was strangled in her apartment only a block from campus just weeks earlier. Janine's parents, Connie and Howard, were in complete shock. They had never heard of anything this horrible happening at the school, and they probably only heard about it because they were members of the parent council and in a private meeting with the president. Had they been anyone or anywhere else, would they have even heard about this? They wouldn't know. Wow. Janine's parents started to question if Tulane was really a safe place for their daughter to go. Luckily, Janine had been accepted to several other wonderful colleges, and this was just around Thanksgiving, so she still had, like, some time to really confirm her acceptance somewhere. So Janine decided on Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. She fell in love with the campus, and both she and her parents felt very safe there. Her mother was also happy that the school was only an hour and 20 minutes from their home in Bryn Mawr suburb west of Philadelphia. So it was like a lot closer. She was happy. She was like, okay, it's a beautiful campus. This next piece I took directly from an article on azcentral.com. I think that's Arizona Central. That sounds right. A few days after Janine returned from spring break in 1986, the 19-year-old freshman was asleep in her dorm room after returning from a party. 
Joseph Henry, a 20-year-old sophomore from Newark, New Jersey, who lived off campus, entered her dorm room through a series of three doors that had been propped open by pizza boxes so that students could easily pass through them. Uh, And this is tough because I remember being in college and at certain points mm -hmm. you would just kind of prop open a door and there was always a security guard there, but like especially during the day or sometimes late at night if it was a weekend, it just people were coming in and out. Henry climbed the stairs and found the door to the second floor locked. He made his way to the third floor where the women lived in the, I guess, so this is frustrating because now I know what this means, but where the women lived in the co-ed dorm. So I don't know. Oh, probably there was a women's floor and a men's floor. Mm -hmm. Okay. The first floor he tried was Janine's. She had left the room unlocked for her roommate who had misplaced her key, which is also something that happens and used to terrify us. I'd be like, you know what? I'm just going to set an alarm and like you just have to knock real loud because I'm keeping this door locked. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Janine woke up as Henry rifled through her room. He tried to silence her by slashing her with a beer bottle. He raped and sodomized her. Then he strangled her with a wire from a slinky toy. Oh, a slinky? Oh, I hate that. The crime was random. Henry had been out all night drinking after losing a student election that day. Oh, okay. And he entered the dorm room to steal. Henry was a former honor student who flunked out of school before coming back. He had been fired from a restaurant job for being violent, but had no prior record other than being disciplined by the university for throwing a rock through a female student's window. So there's already, like, aggression against women there. The Clearies had been vacationing in Bermuda. As they arrived home in a taxi, they saw police cars in their driveway. Connie insisted on saying the Lord's Prayer before before talking to police. Then they learned the horrible news. Henry was sentenced to death, but later received life without parole when he agreed to drop his appeals. They settled out of court for confidential sum with Lehigh promising to increase security, including adding card access into dorms. The family used the money to set up its advocacy organization called Security on Campus. They lobbied state legislatures and Congress to require colleges to report campus crimes. Pennsylvania was the first state to mandate such crime reporting in 1998. Dozens of states followed. Which So this is crazy. This happened in 1986, and mm-hmm. it took until 1998 for them to finally be like, yeah, we'll report these crimes. And it's really, I long. think it's only only three to four years. Some schools Ugh. just list it the whole time, but I think they only have to really show, like, the last three to four years worth. Right. That's wild. Ugh. Congress passed the Janine and Cleary Act, which is now just called the Cleary Act, in 1990, mandating the reporting of crimes on campus. That's something that's in place now, so you could look up any campus and they have to legally show any kind of crime. So whether they're murders or sexual assaults or um, theft, anything like that. So I actually looked up my college campus and there were no murders, but it was... It was hard to see because you're like, okay, so four rapes were put down this year. You know, like you can see what's on there. Um, But it is good to, it is a good thing to have. Yeah, definitely. Good transparency. Agreed. Thank you for those. Also, I had to look this up. It feels so crazy to me to talk about how disproportionately media-centric Ivy League crimes are than other college crimes when like 
the most famous college crimes are like Ted Bundy at Florida State University. Mm-hmm. That's not an Ivy League school. Well, I was going to say that I Ed Kemper, the Danny mm-hmm. Rawlings, mm-hmm. the Green River, like a whole bunch, all your all your most well known serial killers, not all, but a lot of them. Yeah. Murdered college women and they were not Ivy League students. Right. Well, I mean, when I did a quick Google search, it was all non-Ivy League schools that popped up. I know. Same thing. I didn't find any Ivy League murders. Which is why, to me, it's almost more interesting that there was a murder on the Yale campus because that seemed stranger to me. Right. That statement, though, that like, well, one Ivy Leaguer's worth three. That feels like such bullshit to me because I can name way more than three other people in non-Ivy League college situations who were ruthlessly murdered. But if you asked me to name three Ivy League students, I couldn't do it. Yeah. Where is all this media attention? Like, what? I don't I don't understand where the statement came from, basically. Yeah. Unless you're talking about skull and bones type bullshit. But we can talk about secret societies later. I agree with you on some of them. I don't know about the skull and bones guys. <laughs> and girls now. Partly as of joking, 1991. yeah. I mean, Somehow they You know the Freemasons terrify me. Yeah. But... Yeah, now they're gals, too, as of 1991. Right. Ladies can be skull and bones knights as well. Perfect. Isn't that great? Well, back to the case at hand. The police continued searching the lab while the items they already found, so the boot, the sock, and the lab coat and box of gloves, and then I guess other little things they found in the ceiling, they sent off for DNA testing. Then on September 13th, I hate this part, which is the day that Annie and Jonathan were supposed to get married, Police noticed a foul odor emanating from a lower-level locker room in the lab. Oh. Yep. The affidavit states that authorities discovered Annie's body in a cable chase inside the wall of a basement laboratory. Mm. And this basement lab was used primarily to house mice. Mm -hmm. And the cable chase was located behind the insulation. Okay. Which is why cadaver-sniffing dogs didn't find her earlier. Police dogs were brought into the building, well, because at this point it was obviously way more evident, and they found the lifeless body of a female. She was wearing surgical gloves with her left thumb cut out of one of them. I don't know why one would do that, but... Was um, it cut out or did it just like break off? It said exposed. Maybe it broke off. Mine mine always break off. Oh, really? Blood was smeared behind the wall and insulation was used in attempts to conceal the body. So she was also like packed around with insulation. So that's going to kind of mask some of the smell and stuff. Detectives found three key items inside this little hidey hidey hole that he found. A green ink pen, a blood-stained lab coat, so that's two now. He just changed in his lab coat in the middle. And a sock similar to the one they found in the hallway drop ceiling. So this is the match to the other sock. And you never find the second sock. I know, and look at that. I can't find any of my socks, and they Mm -hmm. found two of this guy's. Probably also had his name in them. Now, a cable chase is small, by the way. It's the channel in the wall used to neatly house electrical cords. So you know that like little tiny thing that's like cut away so they're like organized. And Annie had been shoved in there by force to make her fit. Oh, oh, and she's small. She's little, but also, oh, her bones were like broken to fold her up and get her in there. So she was really shoved into the wall. It's very aggressive. One officer said, and I don't like this quote, but it is everywhere, quote, she was like mush, so smashed you couldn't recognize her. Yeah, I could. Right, like this tiny little crevice. Yeah. 
the Connecticut medical examiner's autopsy found that Annie's death was due to, quote, traumatic asphyxia due to neck compression. So that means she was strangled, probably with hands. At that time, investigators then examined Ray Clark's movements in the building on September 8th, and they were shifty. They discovered that Ray's keycard activity was substantially higher in comparison to his prior use, according to the police affidavit. They also discovered emails that he had sent to Annie complaining about her leaving her mice's cages dirty. So he was, like, pretty aggressive. But Annie was very respectful and apologetic. So sorry, I'll never do it again. I didn't realize I don't want you to have to do extra work, etc. So now, who the fuck is Ray Clark and where is he? Because I think the police are gonna want to talk to him. Mm -hmm. Ray Clark was a 20, or still is, he's not dead, 26-year-old at the time lab technician at Yale who has what I can only refer to as crazy fratty douchebag eyes. And if you know, you know. Yep. Pictures of those guys in like, standing on a bar and like next to some girl's ass and stuff. They have those eyes, those like crazy wild eyes. Yeah. He has those. Oh. Yeah. He was engaged to fellow lab tech Jennifer Rudmaka. Now, Jennifer is seemingly a sweet and mild-mannered horse girl, according to her Instagram account. There are accounts, um, not accounts, there are like documented instances in the year following his spoiler alert conviction where she defends him and she did go to visit him for like a year afterwards and a lot of people really hate that but we also have to remember that if this guy had that kind of capacity for evil probably was also pretty manipulative and a 20 year old 22 year old girl or however old she was like I don't know. I think you just never want to believe the worst of someone who you've agreed to spend the rest of your life with. Right. You can't just snap out of it. You can't. You really can't. So I I really encourage anyone who is judging her harshly to kind of pull back on that a little bit because I think she's been dealt a scary hand and has had a really hard enough time. We should just let her live. And she worked it out. She did work it out. She She did. She's, She's not, she's no longer doing those things. But I was just like, kind of sad to see that because I know that especially younger women a lot of times like you can't you don't you want to believe the best you're so idealistic about men that you love you know like right it's also an unbelievable thing that happens totally unbelievable and like we've said a million times your brain doesn't want to go oh yeah he's a totally a murderer right you want to find every instance in your head that makes him innocent Mm -hmm. anyway we're not going to be a dick to Jennifer I truly hope she's getting along okay So social media shows, because this is in the uh, early ages of social media, that Ray had a MySpace profile where he said charming things like, I'm homo Ray and I fart on people. Yeah, that sounds right. And that the people he liked to meet were your mom so I can fuck her. Yep. Yeah. Though this may have been a prank, some people assume that like his friends made this profile as a dig or something. And maybe they did. Or maybe they didn't, and he thought that was funny. No, I'm sure he thought it was funny. That was my thought. Ray also has a lot of pictures of himself being a real cool party dude and, like, kissing his pit bull, standing on a bar with a paddle and some kind of frat party. He was just white guying at 150% at all times. Right. We also didn't know how permanent social media was yet. We did not. We just did not understand. didn't know that (laughs) homo Ray, who wants to fuck your mom, was going to be around forever. Yeah. His friends, family, and former schoolmates, however, really have nothing negative to say about him, which you might say, like, all his friends and family aren't going to. But this is also people that went to, like, elementary school with him. 
And none of them said a single shifty thing. They were like, yeah, Ray was a nice guy. He was fun at parties and at sports games. And a couple people said he was kind of too controlling over his fiance, but that's about it. So most people who knew this guy said that this came totally out of left field. Except the fact that he was a little too controlling with his fiance. Uh-huh. But she but was that's not a problem. She was quick to say, no, 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 no. He's great. I love him. Again, mm-hmm. we're not going to be a dick to Jennifer. She probably went through some shit. Yeah, she probably thought... He probably yeah. was a little too controlling. He probably was. On September 15th, police searched Ray's Middletown apartment and took samples from him in effort to obtain his DNA. According to the warrant, police got the match they needed to make an arrest. On the green, which they obviously were going to, on the green ink pen, investigators found a blood stain that contained Annie's DNA and they found Ray's DNA on the pen cap. The warrant states um, that that's how they found it anyway. Like you would chew on a pen cap. That makes sense. He also used that specific green pen to sign in at work that day. Okay. Yes. A stain on the sock found above the ceiling tile, so not the one in the wall, the one in the ceiling tile, contained, quote, a mixture of both Raymond Clark's DNA and the victim's DNA. They just say there was fluid from Raymond Clark on it. They do not say what fluid it was, but medical examiners did confirm that this crime did involve and was most likely motivated by sexual assault. So we can all guess what kind of fluid goes with that. Ray Clark was then arrested on September 17th at a Super 8 motel in Cromwell and charged with murder. After his arrest, Ray was held on $3 million bail at the McDougal Walker Correctional Institution, which is a maximum security prison in Suffield, Connecticut. Don't put that on your to-visit list. Go to the burger place instead. He appeared in Connecticut State Superior Court on October 6, 2009, but at that point in time did not enter a plea at all. His hearing was delayed until January 26, 2010, since not all of the materials in the case had been made available to lawyers. Right initially at that point, so this is January 26, pleaded not guilty. <laughs> How, Ray? I know. Yeah, How- but doesn't that just have to do with like certain, like, I don't know, for it to go to trial or something? I guess, but I would be, I don't know, I'd be afraid of, maybe he thinks they're looking for the death penalty or something. I don't know what Connecticut's laws were then. I don't think they had it, but still. His pretrial hearing was scheduled for March 3rd, 2010 in New Haven and pretrial evidence processing scheduled for July 26th. In March of 2011, however, Ray entered a guilty plea in the charges of murder in exchange for a 44-year prison term which is a real odd amount of years, not what they usually give, but that's what was in their plea deal. I think it was because they figured that was absolutely life in prison. But he's only 26. He was at the time of his arrest, so he's like 28. Yeah, I don't know. On the additional charge of attempted sexual assault, Ray entered an Alford plea. And an Alford plea is basically not saying you're guilty, but admitting that there is enough evidence to make it look a lot like that you're guilty and that a jury could prove you were guilty. Okay. Ray officially entered the pleas on March 17th and was formally sentenced to 44 years of imprisonment on June 3rd. So Ray expresses great remorse at his sentencing, but offered absolutely no explanation for the attack or any motive whatsoever. Oh, I hate that. At his sentencing, Ray simply said, quote, I stand here today taking full responsibility for my actions. 
I am truly, truly sorry for taking Annie's life. Okay. That's it. That's it? Mm Mm-hmm. Annie's mother, Vivian, said, quote, you took away my only daughter. Her future is gone. Her life is gone. Society has lost a beautiful woman. My family has lost a beautiful soul. And the judge said that closure is not a likely scenario. This defendant is going to pay for this crime every day of his existence. Ray Clark is serving his sentence at the Cheshire Correctional Institution. We've talked about Cheshire before as well. And is scheduled for release on September 16th, 2053. And that is that. Yeah, I guess he would be, so if he does spend the 44 years, I guess he'd be 80, right? Right. I think they figure that, like, I don't know if you live as long in jail as you're going to live other places. But then also at 80, like. What are you going to do? Yeah. Which I know is not the point, but still, what are you going to do at 80? Although, I mean, I I know 80-year-olds. They do stuff. They do things. An 80-year-old is, like, running our country. That's true. That is absolutely true. I guess you can do things at you 80. You can do things, but maybe he'll get, like, weak and mm-hmm. in prison. Maybe he'll trip and fall on some broken glass. I have no mm-hmm. idea. But I hate that he doesn't explain. That's the, what gets me, too. There's so no motive, left, no explanation. You're just left to kind of gauge it from the emails, maybe? That that's, everybody just, says that the thing with the mice, that they, that he was he thought she was, like, careless and disrespected him and just, like, had... He had to clean up after her, and so he got mad and raped her. Which, yeah, I mean, Which that makes rape sense. Rage, how I many, get it. Yeah. yeah, how many cases have we done where that just it's is the just thing? so. Although you know, it's people say it was out of the blue, but also, had he gotten away with it, may not have been his only thing. Right. We don't know. Twenty six is not like a time in your life where you are so fully established that things being out of character are, you know big giant I mean that's true so I mean okay so I've heard a couple different cases where they find someone who it's their first murder Mm -hmm. and it is something kind of like this I I would the Anand Saeed case I always think of his where it's so unclear whether he's guilty or innocent it's just so that it's so frustrating because you start to get to a place with it and then you're like "Uh." so this is one of those cases but the uh, journalist that kind of follow that case on serial yeah she always says she's like either he's innocent or we we caught a serial killer in the making yeah like this literally could have been his first one and we just stopped a serial killer from happening that case and wouldn't that be crazy if that's what they just did here this was just his first victim and it was kind of sloppy wow wow and how yeah. many times do we do that Maybe a lot. We don't know. I mean, thankfully, there's no way of knowing that. But yeah, I mean, actually, we kind of do know. Like, Mm -hmm. Ed Kemper was put away Mm -hmm. after killing his grandparents, and then he was released. And then he killed a whole bunch of other people. Right. Yeah. So it it definitely happens. Mm -hmm. Don't release them. That's Yeah, don't release them. Not great. It's not not okay. Well, so. Thank you. Yeah. So obviously to Annie. What a horrible, tragic loss. I mean, a lot of her professors and associates in all the quotations about her say very similar things. They said, you know, this was not someone who was messing around. Like, this was a young woman that was very much set out to change the world and on track to do so in her career. Yeah, that's, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to Annie and her family and to her fiance, Jonathan. Yes. 
And anybody else? To Handsome Dan. Handsome Dan. The handsomest bulldog that ever handsome. Yes. And if we trusted the safety of ivy-covered walls, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Are people bouncing their pickles that much?